a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is the time where you can explain to your neighbor if they're not aware yet their new Star Wars movie came out. That's probably going to be important. In the time when the judges ruled, a man named Elimelech moved from his hometown because there was a famine. He went from his hometown looking for food because his hometown was named the Beit Lechem, which means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. So he leaves from this house of bread looking for food. He ends up in Moab. His wife and his children come with him, and his sons marry, but he and his two boys die, leaving a widowed wife and a daughter-in-law that decides to stick by her. This is the story of Ruth, an immigrant whose name means friend, who goes back with Naomi to the house of bread and there finds security in Bethlehem. Now from the lineage of this rotten foreigner to the eyes of some within the clan comes a man named Jesse. And from the root of Jesse, King David is born in that little town. Now, earning its moniker, the city of David, is nice, and it feels quaint when you hear it on the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But ironically, the title sort of lost its revolutionary nature just when we most need to hear about this rebellion. So what's so political about this house of bread? It's always been a small place. The current population is about 5,000 people, which is as large as it's ever been. It was the birthplace to King David around 1,000 BCE. Samuel anointed David there. David made it his home. And then later the Philistines made a military garrison there. And during that time, some of the last days of David's life, he longed to drink from some water at the well of Bethlehem. And many... Many years later, this is the setting for the Nativity. Now let's keep that Star Wars theme going here. We're going to jump forward from the prequels, which no one likes to remember anyway, to Episode 7, God's Force Awakens. In this town of kings and coronations and military might, after the exile in the Babylon turns into a quiet haven for a quiet family who gently walks into this immaculately clean stable made for animals, who all act like perfect animals, purring and being quiet perfect animals, standing by while Mary gently and quietly gives birth and puts a dry, clean baby Jesus into the manger where he coos with divine infantile felicity. Silent night, all is not calm. All is not calm. Now, I'm not an OBGYN, but having walked alongside my dear wife on the occasion of our three children's births, I know one thing as certain as the rising sun, that there was nothing silent about this night. Amen, mothers? It takes hard work and fortitude and a lot of people coming alongside you and telling you how wonderfully courageous you are. There are medical voices and family voices usually shouting over one another. And then this scene, there were probably animal voices because what cow doesn't get upset when somebody is yelling next to them? Now, I hate to burst the bubble of any of our former innkeepers 
here, if you played that role, maybe in the Christmas pageant. But the word in Luke that's translated in, or, or the hotel, at Cataluma, we think was probably actually an extra room in the back of a normal home where the supplies would have been held, unless there were a lot of guests in town. On the eve of a giant census brought on by Caesar, everybody's in town. So there's not much room at home, but there are a lot of people in the home. All of them. So Mary, on this occasion, gets to hang out with all of her in-laws as she gives birth. In this peasant home, with a lot of these relatives around, but we don't think there was a detached stable so much as the front part of the home where the animals would have come in for the night so that they didn't get killed by wolves or other creatures. And down there is where you would have a feeding trough and a manger with all the family back here hanging out, enjoying their wine. Down where these animals are is where the birth of the Savior happens. And there is nothing silent about it. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter how we picture this scene in our mind? Where Jesus was born, what you think of this city, what you think about the setting of his birth can significantly shape your understanding of the gospel, I believe. Think about our traditional understanding of the nativity. The little town of Bethlehem, nothing going on there, sleeping in heavenly peace, this little baby, in a separate shed or stable out from the rest of the people. Just Mary, Joseph, some oxen. A holy respite of separation from the rest of humanity that couldn't find room from this traveling couple who made it there just in the nick of time. If we're honest, sometimes that's what we think about the church. That this is a place of separation. Something separate from that messy world that we can't handle. We come to find a little glow of emotion every time the preacher preaches or the musicians sing. And we've made our manger this sort of gorgeous, ornate building separated to escape the world but what would have happened if God treated us like that? If God said, I'm not going into that world. It's wild down there. It's garbage. As a matter of fact, I'm going to stay away from it. I might even try to annihilate it. Now, we did see that story in the prequels. and It was called Noah's Ark. And we didn't turn out very well in that story. But the good news of the gospel that God did not leave us in the prequels, but through the prophets, God declares a new hope. From the house of bread, the Savior will come to fill us all. From a lineage of power will come the Prince of Peace. From that smallest of Judah's clans comes a God who moves into the neighborhood, born in our homes coming to that most intimate of life settings to change the most significant of places, our hearts, our souls, our minds, our propensity for keeping the world at bay. 
And one of the ways that we do that today, one of our propensity for separation, is that most interesting of 20th century inventions, suburbia. Think about it. With attached garages and side door entrances, many of us can travel from work to home without ever having to interact with another human being. We wouldn't have to listen to Mary as she made it back to town. We wouldn't have to deal with those folks along the way. We can just get safe at home to our separate alcove. Just like we see the manger setting to be. Separate and safe away from the rest of our lives. But praise the Lord that our God is a God that doesn't leave us mourning in the lonely exile of our television-lit living rooms, but is born in our very own homes. I call this an infantile revolution because Jesus isn't born into a sterile stable, but inside the place that you and I covet most, our dwelling. This is the kind of deity that doesn't allow us to shelve our spirituality next to old cookbooks, but demands that we deal with the God here and now, the crying baby in the room, crying out for care and for love and for us to take care of those who carry the image of this child, the image of God, which Genesis 1 tells us is imprinted on all of us. This child born in our homes demands something be done. And like any baby does, dramatically changes how we spend our time. Amen, parents? How we spend our money. Amen, parents? And what we spend our time thinking about. Usually with a lot more Sesame Street. But this baby is a revolution because the infant whose origins of our old transforms the world. Herod knew it would destroy his kingdom if his people followed this line of thinking. The prophets, including Micah, knew that this shepherd is going to change Israel forever. And when this infantile revolution occurs in our identity, instead of just in our incidentals, it transforms us from Americans to who happen to call ourselves Christians when we can get the church, to Christians who happen to be American. When the Christ child is in our home, we cannot help but love and serve the living God of Israel. When the Christ child is deep within our identity, we cannot help but love and serve the living God. Much of this is wrapped up into what I've been sharing with the parents of this church lately. We've had a few parent dinners, and if you know any parents who haven't signed up yet, let me know. We'd love to have this conversation with you. But I'm spreading the good news about what it means when Christ becomes part of our identity. It's called sticky faith. Just like it sounds, it's about what it means to have faith in the 21st century. It looks like that that future is going to look a lot less like going to that separated manger, but instead making that stable part of our homes and our everyday lives. There's a study done by Christian Smith, who's at Notre Dame, using this massive pool of data from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. And he found that parents who attend worship regularly 
declare their beliefs to be important to them, and talk about their faith at home, 82% of their children maintain their spiritual lives into adulthood. That's a nearly deterministic result. And of those factors of, of worship and holding strong beliefs and talking about those beliefs at home, which one of those three do you think was the strongest correlate? Which one of those do you think was the most powerful? The family. Talking about your faith at home. And mainliners, that's Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, all sorts of other folks, were the ones least likely to talk about their faith at home. You see, we have this reputation as Presbyterians, frozen and chosen. We're taught to use words as infrequently as possible so as not to persuade the trajectory of our children's choices. We want them to choose for themselves, is the tagline. But this is a false dichotomy we know now, as children will follow the emotional narratives that are advertised to them, regardless of the rational choices that we try to present. Our faith in the world should look less like the chilling, frozen, and more like this Christ child. Humble and bold. Identity-shaping and life-changing. Shared by God to us and to the world without fear, without judgment. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a musical that's hot on Broadway right now called Hamilton, based on the life of Alexander Hamilton. And he beseeches us to move forward with this line. He says, scratch that. This is not a moment. It's the movement. Where are the hungriest brothers with something to prove at? Hamilton was an orphan boy, a refugee, an immigrant, who makes his way to America by the scraps he could find, the bread wherever he could. And he finds his energy in his soul by living off of this movement that he found in America. In our story, Jesus is born in the house of bread and into our homes and into our lives. And that's just one piece of the infantile revolution. I've told you about what I think that means for parents. But how can you be a part of this Perhaps if you don't have kids in your home right now. Grandparents can work with their grown children, encouraging them in that hard task of spiritual parenting. If you live around here, you can fight for affordable housing right here in D.C. so our residents aren't being ousted from their own homes, often holding on by scraps of bread in their own places of living pushed away by the invading armies of millennials. Can you do that? Can you talk to your children? Can you fight for this to happen in your neighborhood? So that we don't create this separate place, maybe on the other side of the river, where we can let those kinds of problems be dealt with. But do as God did for us. Moving into our neighborhood into our neck of the woods, 
not outsourcing our justice, but by building those relationships ourselves. It's what God did for us. Mary responds to this good news that God is coming into town with an anthem for rebellion. Now, it's nothing like John Williams' classics, The Binary Sunset or the Princess Leia theme song. I think it's better. It's a Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. Or, as it's put in one of my newest favorite hymns, the Canticle of the Turning, from the halls of power to the fortress tower, not a stone will be left on stone. Let the king beware, for your justice tears every tyrant from his throne. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never earn. There are tables spread. Every mouth will be fed, for the world is about to turn. My heart shall sing of the day you bring. Let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears as the dawn draws near, for the world is about to turn. Good news. God's force has awakened a revolution within us. Christ is coming. And for this, we have hope. Amen.